And then beyond that in California, and again, this like extends well beyond just our state, but I was reading an article yesterday about how the average cannabis consumer, like 90% of them, believe that cannabis products and brands have to meet certain environmental standards and ethical standards. Yeah, like people, people believe that like weed must be, like most people think, weed must be free of pesticides. Or if we're talking about like environmental issues when it comes to cannabis, it's pretty astounding the amount of waste that is generated from cannabis products, particularly disposable vapes. And I know that those aren't just in the cannabis lane. Um, jewels are destroying the planet too. Not that it's like the single cause, <laughs> but a lot of times cannabis products can't actually be recycled because there is waste, there is like plant waste that is contaminating, supposedly contaminating these products. So like, it's just waste on top of waste, on top of waste, on top of waste. And in California, we also have crazy child-proofing package requirements that creates more waste and more waste and more waste. And it's expensive for the brand too, to have to work with some kind of company that helps them create packaging that meets state standards. Yeah, there's there's a lot of hoops to jump through if you want to have a legitimate cannabis business, which would explain why in California, the black market is actually doing like way better than the legal industry because you got to have so much money to play the game here. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Creator, comedian, cannabis advocate, and all-around edutainer Brooke Bergstaller joins me for a very enlightening and upbeat discussion. Brooke is a Los Angeles resident making her mark in a variety of ways. As the host of the podcast Budding Mine, to starring in the world of weed, which she develops, produces, and hosts daily. Brooke is an active voice advocating for cannabis decriminalization and an exceptional Instagram influencer who uses her platform to both educate and entertain about plant medicine, social justice, and arts and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Brooke. I'm excited to have you on. I love what you're doing. I love Budding Mind, your new... How long have you been? How many episodes do you have? Budding Mind, the po your podcast? Oh my goodness. Over 20. We've hit the mark. Yeah. You've had some kick-ass guests. And in fact, we've had, it, uh, I believe, a little bit of overlap. You interviewed Andrew D'Angelo. Yes, that's right. I saw on your Instagram, you did the same. I'm super excited by how active and proactive you are in the movement. How did you get so enthralled in the cannabis industry and the political, you know, destigmatizing and making sure that we get more and more, not just decriminalization, but legalization throughout the entire country? Yeah, well, I started, my relationship with Cannabis Begins as a consumer, started as a stoner, and as I matured, my relationship with the plant 
matured and I started really getting involved in cannabis as a career as a reporter and a journalist for Mary Jane. And it just blew the roof off my brain that it was even a possibility to be spending my time and energy invested in talking about and learning about this plant. And uh, once I learned that that door could be opened, I never wanted to (laughs) walk out of it. So yeah, I've been creating a lot in this space for different media companies and for different brands and also for myself and just feel a very strong connection to this plant, um, both medicinally and therapeutically, but also spiritually. And just to go totally off the map, uh, I'm a woo-woo girl, so I do believe that cannabis has a plant consciousness and she enables us to communicate with that when we partake in her. And I believe that as cannabis consumers, we have somewhat of a duty to portray and represent her in the best possible light. And so that's really all I'm I'm trying to do. And there's a lot of people out there doing the same that I very much admire and and look up to. So it's it's been an exciting journey that continues to expand. Absolutely. And Andrew, for me, Andrew D'Angelo is one of them and his brother, Steve, of course. They're great guys. I will, I, I must admit, I'm all about it. I want for it to be legalized federally, but I'm a lightweight. <laughs> I think some of it has to do with the fact, particularly with edibles, I'll just get way too baked. Five, seven years ago, somebody gave me a taffy from Oregon after they became legalized it. And I, I couldn't get off the soap. Like, I could not get off the couch when she gave it to me. Yeah, it can be like that. That's, you know, I think an important component of legalization, even though there's a lot of nervousness and concern about what that could look like, the education component and regulation component could be, and I believe would be very important for people like you and even for me, just to kind of have some bumpers on their experiences and clear statistical information about how how this will affect you, how X will affect Y. And yeah, I mean, I've also had dozens of experiences where I'm like, damn, I ate too much. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I was reading about in Texas where you're at. I know that you guys don't have a lot of access to cannabis, so I'm sure you find your ways. But I read that your agriculture commissioner, Sid Miller, just came out as saying, like, mind-boggling for this man wearing a cowboy hat who is like a diehard Republican to make a public stance in favor of legalization for Texas. So, and I know that like so many Texans, ah, I'm so sorry. No, no, because where I was going with this is one of my favorite Instagram posts of yours is I want you to tell my audience the fun fact, tell them and tell me again, what you know about cannabis farming, the crop, like the fun facts as far as uh, economically, Ah, yeah. I mean, cannabis is one of like the top, I think it's like the fourth most. You said five, sorry. Ah, there we go. The fifth most profitable crop in the United States. And, you know, the other crops that you're looking at are ones that you know very well, like corn and soy and wheat, et cetera. So uh, (laughs) yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And I believe that cannabis could become 
the most profitable crop for farmers in the United States if we were able to use, to reintegrate hemp into the myriad of industries that it was booted out of, um, paper industry, textiles, construction, fuel, food, et cetera. So that's another peg on the board for legalization, but. I am thrilled and it was shocking because God knows, I got to be honest with you, I live in Austin and I love Austin. It's a blue dot, very progressive, but my God, you know, things are getting a little crazy and disturbing here in the state. Nonetheless, I don't want to delve yeah. in that direction. That's a whole nother topic, but I think you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. <laughs> I'm disgusted, very passionate about that. I was raised by kick-ass women, my sisters, my, my girlfriend, and it's wrong. It's a politicized topic. It shouldn't be. It should be pretty obvious that uh, it's profitable. It has medicinal benefits, all of these things. There's a lot that people don't know about and yet are able to have really solid opinions about. And that is fascinating to me. But, you know, my greatest wish for humanity is just for people to open their fucking minds. As long as you do no harm to others, then live the life you please. Oh, but I did want to share. You said that you you live in Austin in Texas. And a friend last night said that Austin is like living in a really nice house in a really shitty neighborhood. <laughs> and your house is so beautiful, but like you can't drive anywhere cool. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not going to agree with that because I have found little, for instance, Marfa. I don't know if you've heard of Marfa. Mm. It's a kick-ass bohemian, very small town out in West Texas. It's just well known as a really progressive town of like 3,000 people. And the stars are amazing, beautiful. Like you can see shooting stars every five minutes. Wow. Big Ben National Park is right. It's just south. Okay. You're putting Marvo on the map right now. Marfa. Marfa. Okay. Marvo. <laughs> like I can't find it. <laughs> no, you're good. But uh, there are, I mean, even in places... San Antonio, I think, is a pretty progressive town. Uh, Houston, Dallas is, a, you know, not not necessarily, particularly in the suburbs. But I still have hope. I saw an article, it was actually on the Dallas Morning News not that long ago, that if all registered Democrats actually voted, Beto would win. Hmm. And so what the, what is it going to, I mean... I just don't understand where the apathy is. It's baffling to me. You do have a little bit of expertise, I must say, and I was impressed. But do you mind explaining the State Rights Act to the listeners? The State's Rights Act? Oh, my gosh. To be honest, Tom, I don't even remember. Oh, God. So what do you just remember these things and just regurgitate them and forget? That's right. I mean, there's so much that's happening every day in the cannabis space and beyond that even for me— it can be very difficult to remember these things. The transients, it's a lot to hold on to. Let that be food for thought, everyone. Go watch whatever video that... Check Brooke's uh, Instagram. It's awesome. Like you integrate... What I love about your Instagram is you integrate really valuable information about cannabis. Mm. For instance, the farming uh, aspect. Yes. Well, I specialize, I call it edutainment. And I did not coin that word. But it is adorable. Like a long time ago, a lady told me that that's what I do. Her name was Susan Wren. Great, great lady. She was a producer. And I kind of latched on to that phrase. There's a lot less pressure in that than 
you know, just delivering information. Okay. Well, how about, hopefully this one you can help me with the next two. You're out of LA, right? Yeah. What is it that California's gotten wrong with the cannabis industry? Oh, wow. Well, you know, there's been some recent changes in our state excise tax, but for both the consumer shopping at a dispensary in California, the prices are astronomical. What you're paying for, if it's a pack of joints, it's $20 on the label, you're paying $40 out the door easily. And so not only is the consumer getting taxed, but the farmer, the grower, the manufacturer, everyone in between is getting taxed as well. And so it's a great way for the state to make profit. But thus far, there are little, if any, cannabis brands that are actually making money at this point, particularly farmers and cultivators. The farmers, and this was just removed, but farmers will be taxed on the weight of their cannabis. And then the cannabis will be taxed again <laughs> before it gets to the dispensary, to the next person down down the chain. So yeah, crippling, I think, is the best word for it. And the plight of those working in the agriculture industry extends far beyond simply for cannabis. But yeah, it's really disappointing. And um, Gavin Newsom has just signed a bill into effect that will remove some of these taxes and allow us to revisit some of these taxes in the future. I mean, you know that your government's going to want to come after money if they can. But if people don't know, and this this is beyond California as well, but you have to pay taxes as a cannabis brand, but you're not eligible for write-offs. And you have to pay your taxes in cash most of the times, unless you have figured out an alternative. Some cannabis companies have consulting companies, and that enables them to pay their taxes in a more legitimate way. But if they don't do that, it's just, it's a, like a really seedy process through and through, and yet you still have to give your money to the government, but you don't get any of the benefits of an ordinary business. And uh, that's obviously just unfair and unjust. And then beyond that in California, and again, this like extends well beyond just our state, but I was reading an article yesterday about how the average cannabis consumer, like 90% of them, believe that cannabis products and brands have to meet certain environmental standards and ethical standards. Yeah, like people people believe that like weed must be, like most people think weed must be free of pesticides or we like- That's what we would all want and hope for. That's what we would all want and hope for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just, I think that's interesting, the disparity between what the, what the average person might think is happening and just the lack of regulation in general. I mean- and if we're talking about like environmental issues when it comes to cannabis, it's pretty astounding the amount of waste that is generated from cannabis products, particularly disposable vapes. And I know that those aren't just in the cannabis lane. Um, jewels are destroying the planet too. Not that it's like the single cause, <laughs> but a lot of times cannabis products can't actually be recycled because there is waste, there is like plant waste that is contaminating, supposedly contaminating these products. So like, it's just waste on top of waste, on top of waste, on top of waste. And in California, we also have crazy child-proofing package requirements that creates more waste and more waste and more waste. And it's expensive for the brand too, to have to work with 
some kind of company that helps them create packaging that meets state standards. Yeah, there's there's a lot of hoops to jump through if you want to have a legitimate cannabis business, which would explain why in California, the black market is actually doing like way better <laughs> than the legal industry because you got to have so much money to play the game here. My follow-up question is, if you wouldn't mind, I'm lightning me since I live in Texas and not in California. What is the difference between the legal and something like Humboldt, the quality and, and the price? Is it neck and neck? Is it? Wait, can you say that again? Between Humboldt and where? What's the difference between the black market and quality? I was just using Humboldt as an ah. growing weed elsewhere, cannabis elsewhere. But Got it. Well, it depends on what price point you're looking to buy cannabis at. Because if you're going into a dispensary and you're buying like the lowest level product, you get what you pay for especially when it comes to legal weed. So if we're talking about pesticides, um, insecticides, things like that, corporate cannabis is able to provide a lower price for you because the cannabis is grown, you know, with a with a bunch of chemicals in it and on it. So if you're buying, buying black market cannabis, there's also an opportunity to buy from smaller growers who are not being taxed to death and are able to keep craft cannabis alive. And as someone who works in the cannabis industry, I've never worked for it. I'm not plant touching. So I get to have all of these thoughts and opinions from the periphery. But I do not poo-poo on anyone who chooses to buy weed in, in a roundabout backdoor way. People need their medicine, man. And if insurance companies aren't willing to subsidize any costs for people's authentic form of medication, then sometimes you can't buy from MedMen. You got to go find the guy. And I love my guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I'll give you. So I probably smoke weed once every three or four months. Oh my gosh, what? Yes, but here's the point it's because. I just, and I'll ask you this, like, and we'll probably go off on a tangent, but how often do you write your creative content when you're stoned or when you're under the influence of cannabis? Mm, well, there's an interesting relationship there. I'm a daily consumer and I, I don't wake and bake. Usually we're waiting till like the afternoon, maybe the evening, maybe we hit it with a one-two punch, but sometimes if I'm writing if I'm conceptualizing, if I'm researching, a lot of times I will indulge. But I've really had to learn, as I mentioned earlier, that I've matured along with my relationship to cannabis. When I have shit to do, I have to know thyself. And I think it's, yeah. And again, being in this space is really, really interesting because I experienced something recently with a group of people where we were going to be on camera together and it was a bunch of donor people and everyone was lighting up their joints and their blunts and their pipes and getting ready. And I was like, oh, actually I don't smoke on camera. So all of the pre-pro, that's fine. But when I'm actually interviewing on camera, reporting, all whatever, I just know myself that that will not elicit the most coherent <laughs> performance. And I really honor and 
like think my lucidity is is sacred. So (laughs) that was my decision at that moment to not partake. And when I said, ah, yeah, I kind of get like, I might get tongue tied or I might move slower, just not be as sharp if I smoke weed for this video. Everyone in the room was like, oh, really? What's that like? And it was so interesting because even as a stoner, I don't smoke enough for some people. So there's just like stigma moving in all different directions. But I really want to continue to promote authentic relationships with whatever external substances that you indulge in because um, there's just like no one-size-fits-all prescription. And if we start to ostracize people who don't smoke enough or don't like consume the way you do, then like, why is anyone going to be on your side and fight for the, like fight the same fight with you? That's exactly right. You know? Yeah. Well, you were surprised when I was like once every three or four months. Well, there's a couple, couple reasons why a, I like you, I am not, I, I am very goofy and fun to be around. I can come up with like some funny shit to say and I'll eat more, but I'm not productive. (laughs) And not to mention one of the reasons why I pulled back on that is people close to me, like family and friends uh, who who have parents, like they have smoked joints a lot and they've now have lung cancer. And I was, I used to smoke cigarettes and I still every blue moon on psilocybin or something uh, (laughs) like a, a psychedelic, I will definitely smoke a cigarette just because that's, Whatever. Oh, I know. <laughs> there is nothing like tobacco when you're tripping. <laughs> so, like, what I'm saying is, that I didn't say I, I don't partake. It's just more of the edible side. I definitely do CBD all the time. It helps me sleep. And then, of course, when it comes to THC, it's more edible mm-hmm. because, um, like I just explained, my lungs. I like to keep my lungs. Yeah. Keep them nice and clean. Like you don't have coffee at midnight, you know? So, okay, you might have coffee at midnight, but if you want to sleep, you probably won't. Everybody is different. But you, so you have like, you know, an intermittent relationship with cannabis, but you do like psychedelics like a little bit more frequently or? Oh, I'm so, oh, I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> you are jumping the gun, but what I'm like, I'm very passionate about legalization and de- de- decriminalization. Right. But also de-stigmatizing is what I was trying uh, to say. But it's helped so many people, me to a degree with my anxiety. I've had bouts of depression, anxiety, a little bit of PTSD. And I am all for plant medicine. It doesn't matter how much I consume. The point is, is we need to start re we need to look at this at a different lens period no matter what which one you know what i will share with you something very adorable i used to be am in this women's cannabis group called cannabis lol and the founders of cannabis would say we would have smoke circles and they would say it's just as powerful to pass as it is to puff and as hallmark ready as that mantra is, I mean, I think it it's a, it's a good rule of thumb. Access to a plant, to like a, a planet-given seed, to a God-given plant, 
would be restricted in any capacity, be it cannabis or mushrooms or any kind of chemical compound. We are all free human beings who come from the same life source, whatever you want to call it. And that life source doesn't have the same rules that we create here on this planet. Some rules are good. Don't kill people. Good rule. Restricting people from the potential for their own healing, obviously that is going against people's inherent rights and how that's not just like more obvious to people across the board is very, very curious to me. But again, I just like, I've been observing lately. I just think that people, they, we, in general, a lot of humans don't want to formulate their own ideas. They do not want to learn about a subject and form an opinion. They just want to be told. And when you start what is that about? Like- I don't know. But when you start walking that path, it just makes life a lot easier to stay super simple, to not have to go outside of the box. That's what he told me. So I'm just going to latch onto that opinion. It's just very scary when the people that you're listening to are like, you know, former presidents of the United States and really have a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, well, we can thank Tricky Dick. Friggin' uh, Richard Nixon, he he started this bullshit, and Reagan also didn't help. And somebody's probably gonna come after me immediately after they hear this. All the Reagan Good. disciples, but it's true. Dare, you're you're too young, but I was. I went through Dare. Did you? That is garbage propaganda. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a weird, weird world that we live in. And I'm so grateful for the advent of the internet to create a lot more intelligent beings. Yeah, to create podcasts, exactly. I thank God every day for podcasts. (laughs) The last free frontier, man. Seriously, thank God. Yeah, for now. Until Spotify's like, actually, um... (laughs) Uh, We'll find a way, trust me. You can't talk about weed on our podcast, on our our platform. Oh, well, I'll find somewhere else to go. (laughs) If Trump can do it and get his own little Twitter box, we can find a way to do the same. Yeah. So I, you mentioned, you touched upon it, and I wanted to tra- go a little more serious. What I do love about your podcast is you brought on some great pioneers and kick-ass female leaders in the cannabis realm and movement and industry. And you had all asked about psychedelics. I wish there were more of that going on in the psychedelic. It's slowly happening. For instance, mm-hmm. I don't know, have you heard of Laura Dawn? She was a guest on my podcast. Mm-hmm. She's awesome. And she is considered one of the female leaders in the psychedelic renaissance, so to speak. But why do you think there's not more women that are in the psychedelic realm thus far? Yeah, you know, I know a lot of kick-ass women in the psychedelic space. I know a lot of incredible, groundbreaking leaders in the psychedelic space. And I'm deeply inspired by a lot of them. I do think that when we're talking about the psychedelic renaissance— One aspect of that is humanity healing. And another aspect of that is this dawning of of the corporatization of psychedelics. And so that is where I would think you would see less women. Less women who are leaning into the profitability of these medicines and less interested in capitalizing off of them for profit. Now, I'm not saying that there's none, but 
it's definitely for me an issue that I'm witnessing continue to be birthed is pushing for the legitimization of these plant medicines more so for potential profit than whatever the beauty that exists within them. And so, yeah, that that's that would be my opinion. And uh, I don't necessarily know if that's back. No, no, I think that's a great point. But as you may have heard, I spoke to Ophelia Chong, who is an absolute mycelium master. And I, I bow to her intelligence and her craft. And I believe that when we read the books about the psychedelic renaissance from the 2000s. Her name will be engraved and etched into that book. And I'm also very good friends with Ariel Clark, who works with the Chacruna Institute. And she's one of the founders of the Psychedelic Bar Association. And she is helping to create some kind of like protocol for the imminent psychedelic businesses to have to follow and participate in to help create a more ethical industry or she calls ecosystem overall. So um, these are two incredibly potent women that this planet is blessed to have. And they are actually the example of why I'm asking this question because Ann Shulgin, do you know who she was or is? She's still alive, but her husband was Dr. Alexander Shulgin. He was the chemist that brought... MDMA back from hmm, the dead. Okay. But they, they were also very, very involved in major proponents of psilocybin with Tim Leary. And, but also, do you know who Maria Sabina is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are two women from, it's been going on. I just, there, you can't, or at least I will give my opinion, there is a disparity. I believe in, in the leadership. And I and I think you made a really great point. And I think it has to do with the corporate world and, and mentality. Yeah. And I think that in general, like I'm coming from I have a lot of different backgrounds, but in a lot of industries, in majority of industries, we see more male leadership than women. And that boils down to systemic uh, systemic issues to gender roles to uh, people having families, etc. So uh, it would make sense that that is also being mirrored in the psychedelic space. I think that in a lot of ways for women who are mothers, it is a lot more risky to vocalize a relationship with plant medicines in any capacity for fear of losing custody of your children, which happens probably happening today somewhere in the United States but like another like I, I I see this in comedy there are far more male comedians than there are female comedians total bullshit but if a woman gets on stage and talks about her vagina everyone's like oh she had to go there and if a guy gets on stage and talks about his dick he has to be 50% as funny and people will still be charmed by him and those are just societal norms that women are supposed to be a certain way we're not supposed to take as many risks we're supposed to be just a bit more soft and 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 I think that that's a perspective and I also believe that that's unfortunately something that we fall into And I think that men are encouraged from when they're young, you crack a joke, everyone's laughing and they're encouraged to pursue and they're validated to behave in a certain way. And that confidence will often parlay into 
feeling comfortable to expand or explore the edges of consciousness. And I think that unfortunately, some women, many women might feel like the invitation is not as clear for them to be as adventurous in, in these ways. I agree. Back to, so I just, for the record, Sarah Silverman is one of my fucking heroes. So I am not of that thread. All right. Like (laughs) I'm not. No doubt, Tom. You're one of the good ones. I know it. I feel like, you know, I had a very heated response to that. Uh, It's not actually a question that I've ever been presented with before. So I'm flexible on my point of view. Uh, But it's about being a mother and, you know, it's only legal. It's It's not legal technically very anywhere currently. I mean, Oregon, January 1... There's a bunch of decriminalization, but technically it's the Wild West. It's the frontier right now. It's not like cannabis, but thank God for cannabis, it gives us a roadmap, right? In some ways, yeah. Should we follow the roadmap? I don't know. (laughs) Take the path less traveled. (laughs) Because back to Libby Cooper, like she's at least giving mom and pop and people who want to start their own business in the cannabis industry hope because you have so many of these multi-state operators as you well know that are coming in and becoming fucking monopolies but what's new in america (laughs) yeah it's there's no stopping that train so i think it's just a matter of how do you move with it and uh have as much integrity as possible as an individual the good people need to keep on fighting and the way we make change is through our own communities. Yeah, and and vote. You know, as you mentioned, if the number of registered Democrats were to actually vote, you may have seen a needle moved in a more positive direction in elections across the United States. And in November, I think there's like at least five states that are eligible to vote for legal cannabis. So fucking register to vote. If this is, if you believe in any of this shit, then I, I Of course, there's a lot of people extremely disheartened by government systems, and I'm with you. I believe that all politicians are evil, um, even the good ones. (laughs) I, you know, I just, I just pray for people to be inspired at the very least to be active in the democratic process. And if that's all you, that's your only type of citizen participation that you commit to for the year, then cool. See you at the ballot box. God's sakes, like. Most states, when you renew your license, they do you want to register? It's that fucking easy. <laughs> Seriously. You know, it's like killing two birds with one stone, as they say. Mm. Let's move to psychedelics. What is your experience with psychedelics? And do you have one that you enjoy the most? We don't have to say where you did it or anything. <laughs> you know, I have long come out of the the closet when it comes to these substances and my advocacy for them. So happy to answer any and all cues, but I, you know, I've, I've dabbled in a lot of different experiences. I'm not sure I could say that I favor one over the other. All of these, these compounds are consciousnesses, just like with cannabis. And I believe that they all have their own agenda and mission to carry out through the humans that eat them, that consume them. I have had some really, really beautiful experiences with mushrooms, with psilocybin. I'm on a microdosing protocol right now. That has been phenomenal. You know, these psychedelic journeys have 
expanded my like ability to comprehend possibility more than I could comprehend possibility. <laughs> um, and have really, I've always been a very spiritual person from a young age, particularly through the loss of my brother. And I'm sure that that is relevant to you, having lost both your parents at such a young age. Loss kind of pushes you, can either push you away from the center of self, or it can really pull you in. And I've had a lot of those thoughts around death and life after death validated through psychedelic experiences and, yeah, endlessly in debt to the confirmation, the the experience that you could gain of meeting God, meeting the universe through a psychedelic journey, that kind of, like, you know, when you people talk about meeting the guru, touching their guru's feet, and for a, right, and, like, for a moment feeling from the inside out, like that they've had a taste of total enlightenment, which is just like feeling at one with all, feeling in love with all. Um, psychedelic experiences give you that taste and that doesn't leave you. It can't, it cannot leave you. You know, life, yeah, life is ups and downs. And sometimes you're going to be a dick in traffic, no matter how much acid you drop. But <laughs> you know, that is, that is life. But these substances help to expand your capacity to deal with life and look at things through a new lens. And, but, but again, just like with cannabis, I want to be careful because I'm not an expert. I'm just an advocate. I don't want to ever, I don't want to leave people out. If people don't feel ready to embark on these journeys, I would ask you to look at that. Like, are you afraid or is there why are you afraid? Like, what is the fear? But to completely negate the potential for them to create positive change in your life is a big miss. So as I've mentioned, my own struggles with depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, I am not trying to push anything on a specific thing on anybody. I just want there to be the options yes. for cannabis. It is proven that it helps with anxiety, trauma, PTSD, pain alleviation. So if it's going to help you, then you should consider the option. Now, granted, it is not for everyone. If you have a history of schizophrenia, you should not do ayahuasca. Precisely. And I think that those are really important conversations to include in, in the greater whole. Of, as I was mentioning with fear, when you are afraid to take these substances, what I wanted to say was, are you afraid or have you been made to be afraid? Is the fear yours or did the, or did some kind of government system put that fear in you? And if that's the case, if that's the only root of your fear that you can really pull the thread of, then that's bullshit. Yeah. Like all, here's all the above. It was the government. It was dare. It was, the mm -hmm. church. And then my, my dear beloved, my mom, reason why I'm breathing and speaking to you, mm -hmm. gave me light, brought me into this world. She said, if I tried LSD, I'd wind up like my uncle <laughs> who was not schizophrenic, but I don't know. Like, I never got the, it doesn't matter, but he had major depressive disorders. Or Did I listen to her? Fuck no. Did it liberate <laughs> me? Absolutely. Mother doesn't always know best. <laughs> no, but that's it's a generational thing, right? Like 
do you do you know that MDMA was created by Merck in 1912? As an anti-depression medication, right? It was, uh, no, blood thinner and to low blood pressure. Ah, wow. And we're yeah. this close, thank God, for Rick Doblin and all the other people that are in the movement to allow troops. Because even Republicans are now getting it. Like, holy, actually, we were wrong about that. All you have to do is, if you look at the timeline of these things existing, whether it be cannabis or psychedelics, if you really look at the timeline and when it comes to cannabis, if you look at the beginnings of our country, when people were required to grow hemp and in the world wars, when people in America were required to grow hemp, and then we were told something otherwise, your government used to be okay with these things. There was phase one of the psychedelic renaissance long ago. I mean, there's hundreds, if not thousands of studies that were done on the benefits of different psychedelic substances to heal depression, anxiety, et cetera, decades and decades and decades ago. That information was buried because of an agenda. But if you look at the timeline, the government is just telling you how to feel about these things. And and that comes back to the idea that people don't want to take the mushrooms and figure it out for themselves that they were wrong. They just want to be told so that they can stay safe and live small. And that's not all people. That's not the people I surround myself with. That's not the people I'm sure that you surround yourself with or talk to on this podcast. Uh, but there are a lot of humans that there's there's a lot of scariness in the world. And I understand that life is a lot. And so we do what we can to make things easier. But sometimes what's easier is trying something new. Well, I'm just so glad that I have the balls and the bravery because I've taken probably six or seven antidepressants, done so much talk therapy. I'm all for it. Still have a therapist. Guess what? Hmm. I've done comedy tripping. No way. Where to God on my parents' graves, God strike me dead. Wow. That's crazy. What were you on? Like a lot of like a, a proper dose of anything? So people are like, oh, I did this amount of milligrams. I don't fucking know how to do all that. I've taught myself I buy a quarter or an eighth, and then I'm like, three stems and caps, whatever. Like, I have my own formula. <laughs> it's like how they did it the old way. Before all the scales. Scales and all that shit. But yeah, so typically, you know, you had... Comedians, of course, who some of my favorite, Richard Pryor would rip a line or maybe mm. burn himself to catch himself on fire, do a line or get really drunk. But for me, I just two Miller lights and three or four times my best acts. I did three stems and a couple caps. <laughs> I'm in a flow and that's like I have no fear. And I've come up with some of the most clever shit ever. That's incredible. Wow, I love that. You're brave. You know, I've heard Austin is a pretty fabulous comedy scene and that, you know, allegedly, allegedly Joe Rogan is trying to make it steep competition for the L.A. scene. So, hey, honestly, what I think it's great. What he doesn't realize is that it was already thriving before he got here. What about you? Are you still doing open mics or performing or are you professional? I don't even know. I would not call myself professional, still quite aspirational, but comedy has 
been a, as far as stand-up goes, um, I'm obviously an extremely hysterical person, but in the pursuit of, <laughs> of, I don't know, some kind of career accolades in the realm of comedy, I've, I've waxed and waned with my involvement in the stand-up scene in Los Angeles. It's a very interesting scene in LA. It's very masculine, um, male dominated. Open mics are like, like they're gross, man. You have to first of all, you you usually like have to pay to be able. You have to pay five dollars to be able to tell shitty jokes. And if that's the requisite, like the prerequisite, is you just have to pay five dollars. Imagine the motherfuckers that you're doing open mics with. It's like everyone's dad who thinks they're funny is like. I want to do a mic too. The entertainment industry, creative industries, it's very, very competitive. And stand-up comedy is an isolated pursuit. Like on an improv team, you have other team members. When you're in a band, you have other people. When you're doing stand-up comedy, you're a lone wolf. And a lot of the community is based on an, an opportunity and booking shows is based on meeting people and networking. And so when that becomes part of the, when you have to play a game, there's a lot of like bad players and so it goes. Um, and while I did make fun of people who go to open mics, like a bunch of 65 year old dudes that have no business being at mics, but that's okay. But nevertheless, I do want to say no matter what someone is doing, creating, putting out into the world, if you're fucking making something new, be it a joke or a cookie recipe or whatever, like I support it because I believe that the expansion of existence and the expansion of the universe is the purpose that we are all here to pursue and to contribute towards. And expansion is goodness and retracting and taking away is what is evil. So expand, baby. Like tell your stupid jokes, throw spaghetti at the wall, whatever. Just last month, my partner has like a, a venue, if you will, and decided to put up – We did an amateur hour comedy show and we had 13 people, our friends or friends of friends who had never done stand-up before, did five minute long sets for a crowd of 60, 70 people. It was a big show. It was like bigger than a lot of shows I've done. And some people were so fucking bad. It was ridiculous. I was like, why are you here? But I had to turn that on its head and you just have to say like, even people who Maybe you shouldn't be doing something. Um, I, you have to respect people for trying, right? Comedy is, I think it's the most daunting and-, and It's terrifying. Yeah, and you're up there by yourself more like 95% of the time. So you got to have some serious like courage to do it. And people are, I bombed a couple of times and I had friends or- or people that were in the scene are like, oh, you're not very funny. I'm, and then I just want to be like, fuck you, dude. I saw your bomb like last week. Who is who are you to judge? But that's the thing. You just have so is it that clickish in LA? Because I, I would love to do open mic at the comedy store. Well, you totally should. Oh my gosh. Come out. Do it. Let me know. We'll go together. We'll be support system. But yeah, you know, it's I don't want to speak out of line. I'm not deeply entrenched in the scene at this moment, but I know my experience was that yes, it is it is fairly clicky once you're in, you know, you're in, but you really do have to have some thick skin to be able to to penetrate whatever weird self-created social hierarchy that definitely does exist 
Yes, but bombing is how you learn and you change your, uh, that's like people don't understand that these Kevin Hart specials, Dave Chappelle, he is uh, Louis C.K. before he got <laughs> exiled for pretty much good reason. But I, I, I do. That's a whole other topic. But I will say Sarah Silverman said it was shit. It's hilarious. She was like, yeah, I let him fucking jerk off on it. And I made fun of him the whole time he was doing it. That's so gangster. <laughs> And that's why I love Sarah Silverman. But the point is, is like people don't realize that they're, I, that's how I went to Velveeta Room. I, I was eating a burger, my favorite burger joint on 6th Street, this great dive bar. And I saw him creep by and I was like, where the fuck is he going? And he walked in there and I made friends with the door guy who still works there, Mike. And he was like, yeah, that's Lucy K. He's working on his material because he had a three night run here at the Moody Theater. And that's what people don't understand is comedians are constantly doing that crap. They think they just show up and the Netflix special is how, uh-uh. <laughs> no, baby. You better expect to perform at Alabama State before you're getting your Netflix special. Minor league ball. And that's what the last thing I do when yes. I ask you. I have to ask you. At the comedy store and all the major clubs in L.A., the famous ones. Do you have the clickish scene? Are they laughing like off cue even before the punchline? I'm like, dude, you just laughed at your friend's joke and that wasn't even the funny part. Like, that's the kind of shit that I encounter. Oh, no, I, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, the big venues here in Los Angeles, a lot of times it's people from out of town who are actually in the audience. So I think they're more they're more ready to laugh. You know, they've They've come there to laugh. Uh, sometimes you're at a show where people have their arms crossed and they're like, prove that you're funny. Uh, but but moreover, I think we have warm audiences out here. Have you ever performed? I got my last question. Or maybe second to last. My last question. <laughs> have you ever performed Stone? Yes. I did it at a dispensary and it was awful. I actually don't know if it was awful or if it was just that it was in like, I mean... There's stand-up shows at literally every venue possible. Like, I've done stand-up in run-down Chinese restaurants to audiences of four people. So uh, this was at a dispensary. It was not a cute vibe. I got way too high. And I don't know if people – I think people were just so baked that, like, they didn't even know what they were listening to. They're like, where am I? And I was like, yo, I don't fucking know. <laughs> well, yeah, well, the one thing I will say is when people are stoned, they're like – and I'm just – cracking jokes just off the cuff i'm like that was you made me feel better about my really stupid ass joke because that's not that funny that was a terrible joke so i feel like they're a softball crowd sometimes <laughs> they can be they could be yeah definitely depends but i'm performing at a dispensary next week so wish me luck but i won't i won't be getting high i know myself i will not be getting high beforehand I already have to like write things on my hand because my memory is that of a goldfish. So I don't need to like lower the bar anymore. <laughs> Do you have a tight five or how long are you going to Oh, I got a tight five and a loose 10, baby. I wish you luck. Are you going to post it if it's good? I won't post all of my jokes because what if Sarah Silverman tries to steal them? I'm totally kidding. But, you know... Did you even do a stand-up if you didn't put a picture on your Instagram? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Just, like, take pictures of me holding mics in various places and tell people I do stand-up and don't actually do it. Well, the funny thing is I'm really weird. I use a controlled environment, like total lab rat. 
I wouldn't let my friends or girlfriend come see me because I wanted to make sure my laughs were authentic. Ah, uh, that's good. I like that. I like that. And so I would ask some of the fellow comedians or the ones that are trying to be comedians to take a picture and they're like, fine. <laughs> and there would be like blurry pictures and I'd be like, I can't post this. This is terrible. Thanks for the support. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, I do record my performance in my pocket because technology mm -hmm. sounds pretty good. You always got to record it. Yeah. Well, listen, Brooke, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Keep doing the good work. Kicking ass. Yeehaw. You too, Tom. Yeah, yeehaw. I'm in the Texas spirit. I don't wear a cow. I don't even own a pair of cowboy boots for the record. Well, what are you doing later? You're about to go buy a pair. I'm sure I will at some point, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really beautiful talking to you, getting to know you. All right. All right, Brooke. Keep kicking ass on your podcast. And thank you again for joining me. Goddess speed. Thanks again, Brooke, for joining me on the Neurons to Nirvana podcast. Brooke's podcast, Budding Mind, is enlightening with terrific guests. And please check out all of the links in the show notes to Brooke's mind-expansive and thought-provoking projects. Many of you listening have heard me say that music is my medicine, which rings true. And I love sharing my passion for diving deep into the exploration of discovering new artists. I'm very excited to share with you that the next several episodes will feature musicians I interviewed while they were performing last month during California World Fest. We are incredibly grateful for the privilege of World Fest granting us access to bands and musicians from the US and worldwide. Much like our Discover Utopia sessions, we will be releasing great audio and video content that we captured of the musicians playing and sitting down with me for insightful conversations during the festival. Please be sure to subscribe to the Neurons to Nirvana podcast channel on YouTube to view great content from past episodes and stay up to date on the soon-to-be-released content from the California World Fest. As always, I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining me again. I am Tom Hartridge, and until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.